I'm David Marcus, host of Drinks with the Deal. And today our guest is Stuart Cable, the vice chairman and global chair of M&A at Goodwin Proctor and a lawyer who specializes in advising biotech companies that are selling to big pharma. Stuart, thank you so much for joining us today. It's an honor to participate, David. We're going to talk about several things on today's podcast. First, how you built your biotech practice. Second, your work in advising Myocardia and Spark on their sales. And finally, your work over the last year with Moderna, which is one of the companies uh, developing a vaccine for COVID-19. So with that, I guess to begin, how did you come to build your biotech practice and Goodwin's biotech practice? Yeah, thank you, David. It's a we, not a you kind of thing. But about 15 years ago, I was in a room with my partners at Goodwin, and we were talking about a phenomenon that we were observing growing up across the street from our Boston office in Kendall Square in Cambridge. And that was, of course, the roots of the biotechnology sector. And what we concluded quickly is that none of us knew which end of a test tube was up if we were interested in playing in that sub-vertical. We needed to bring in some talented, specialized, industry-focused folks. And this was at the very dawn, really, of the biotech sector. And so we were early adopters, and we built, over those 15 years, a best-in-class life sciences franchise, which turns out to be kind of at the epicenter of where M&A action is today. So we were a bit strategic for mere lawyers. Uh, We were a bit fortuitous in our Boston location, but we've worked really hard to build a best-in-class franchise, not only of M&A players, but more importantly, of domain experts. You can't participate capably in biotech M&A, either buy side or sell side, in my view, unless you have real experts on your team. I'm talking about PhDs in chemistry and biotechnology or biology who can help you do the diligence, who can explain whether you've got FDA risk or patent risk around your compounds. That's not something a plain vanilla M&A lawyer is typically capable of doing. So it is very much a team enterprise at Goodwin, and we're immensely proud of what we've built. So a couple of questions. First of all, going back 15 years, did, did you have lawyers at Goodwin, or could you identify lawyers at other firms who had those specializations, or did you have to hire from law school over a number of years people who may have gotten PhDs in molecular biology or biochemistry who then decided they were going to law school to marry their previous education with their legal education? The answer, not surprisingly, is all of the above. So we built it from the ground up. We also did a lot of lateral hiring. We thought very carefully and strategically about what parts you build first. You not only have to have a couple people You have to have huge scale. Not all patent issues are the same. You need large molecule people. You need small molecule people. You need all kinds of specialized talent on the regulatory side and the intellectual property side 
in particular. How do you draw up a trigger on a CVR element to an M&A deal unless you truly understand the clinical endpoints? You can't, or you can't capably do it without that specialized domain-specific expertise. And how did you become aware of what was going on in Cambridge where these clients, you had clients, your venture capital partners had, was it just people you knew who were in that industry? Again, all of the above. You know, one of my favorite expressions that one of my now deceased mentors taught me early on in my career, David, was follow the money. And we were beginning to notice that major venture capitalists, smart money, was starting to push into the biotechnology sector. And so we followed the smart clients in the venture and company creation processes. Moderna, which I know you want to talk about later, is an example. A well-known capital source in Boston asked Goodwin to help with the build-out of a new biotechnology company. And when I went in, the company had a few employees, no material capital. And here we are 10 years later at a $60 billion market capitalization. So that life cycle management aspect of representing biotechnology companies comes naturally to Goodwin. Uh, When you're at a place like Goodwin and, and you grow up in the tech world, you grow up in the life sciences world, you have the great good fortune of being able to interact with scientific geniuses, true founders, and you take those ideas from the soup of a startup to the nuts of an M&A transaction. And so that is kind of our roots uh, and the industry therefore came naturally to us. And last question before we switch to myocardia and Spark. Did it in Boston, as to some extent in Silicon Valley, did the VC firms that had historically been focused on technology shift toward biotech or was this a different group of VCs and a different group of VC firms that started to emerge in in the late 90s and early aughts that piqued your interest as a firm? The latter. So the people who have been the great company creators in Boston were not jack-of-all-trades venture capitalists. They were very specialized, smart money who created companies out of whole cloth. A lot of it comes out of the special ecosystem that is biotechnology and healthcare in Boston. MIT, Harvard, Mass General Hospital, Brigman Women's Hospital, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. You had, and even today, you have a remarkable self-reinforcing ecosystem of scientists, of smart capital, of people with foresight to be able to identify cutting-edge new modalities. Moderna, uh, nobody had ever heard of mRNA 10 years ago. Um, And now the two vaccines that will be approved for emergency use in the next couple of days or weeks are kind of the darlings of the industry. No one had heard of that. that. You need brilliant, brilliant founders and smart money to follow those founders in a way that leads to true innovation. 
true innovation has not occurred regularly at the major pharmaceutical companies in the world over the last 10 years. Yeah, they invent from time to time, but more often they buy. And the true innovation, the great innovation, what's made the 21st century, or at least the first half of the 21st century, the era of biotechnology, is that creative genius that comes from the academic medical centers, that comes from the universities that are in and around Boston. Boston does not have a monopoly. There's a great life sciences group of companies and an ecosystem in Northern California. There's another one increasingly in New York. There's a significant one in the UK. We've actually opened an office in Cambridge, England to further our interests in that area. Increasingly, there's activity in Germany, in France, and obviously in China. And just one more question before we switch to the deal-making. Could you talk a little bit about the tech transfer offices at MIT and Harvard? Do you interact with them at all? How well do you know those folks? Or your focus is more on the entrepreneurs as opposed to the tech transfer people who are critical within those institutions? The tech transfer offices at MIT, at Harvard, and really throughout the country have become significantly more sophisticated over the last 10 years in particular. We at Goodwin interact with those university tech transfer offices every day. We're talking to those offices about the next modality, the next new startup. And a number of universities have done exceedingly well with their proprietary technology, which they've outlicensed or sold to the next new thing. So again, those tech transfer offices are absolutely part of the ecosystem that I described earlier. And switching to a couple of deals you've signed up in the last year and and closed, Myocardia and Spark, tell us about those. Yeah, very different situations. Spark is a gene therapy modality for hemophilia. It was sold to Roche about 12 months ago after an exhaustive antitrust review. Myocardia is more recent, closed less than a month ago in the cardiac area. Both of these situations came to us because of our special expertise in the industry. In the case of Spark, we were not incumbent counsel but they knew we knew what we were doing in terms of selling life sciences companies. And so we were recommended to the board and ultimately retained. In the case of Myocardia, Goodwin, with its best-in-class franchise in life sciences, uh, took Myocardia public several years ago. And so we were effectively the incumbent in that situation. The two situations were decidedly different in a tactical sense. And both are interesting stories and present a good point-counterpoint as to tactics. So in the case of Spark, it was a unsolicited bid from Roche. Roche had been involved in collaboration discussions with the company, particularly with regard to Europe. Frequently, these M&A transactions that we do come out of collaboration uh, discussion. So what happened in this instance is the CEO of Roche called the CEO of Spark and said, gee, Jeff, we don't want to talk about the collaboration today. We want to talk about a broader initiative. Would you be open to a proposal to sell the company lock, stock, and barrel to Roche? 
uh, Roche bid at 70, and then the board gathered to consider whether now was a propitious time to consider a sale at all. The usual back and forth ensued, and we ended up with one very deep-pocketed additional bidder, so we took two to the goal line. Uh, We asked for final bids on a Friday afternoon at noon. The final bids came in from both buyers. Each of them were labeled last, best, and final. They were both in the 80s, and our instincts, the instinct of the board, the instinct of the bankers, and the instinct of us mere lawyers were that the bids that they had given us at noon were not less best than final. And so we decided as a group to test their medal as to last best and final. And we gave them back a couple hours after their bids came in the following message. We said, gee, guys, we have multiple bidders on top of one another. We're expecting, we're asking you now for true last best and final bids at 6 p.m. tonight. And by the way, you need to have your agreement done. Every I dotted, every T crossed, and you need to give us a signature page to hold. If you meet those qualifications, you're free to bid at 6 o'clock. You can do so by email. And at 6 o'clock, we'll open the envelopes. And unless you're right on top of one another again, we're going to pick the winner. And we're not calling you back if you finish second. We are not calling you back. We're simply going to accept the signature page from the other party. So that's what we did. Now, recall that uh, the two parties who were in the finals here were in the 80s, when last they told us six hours ago that it was last, best, and final. Well, we were right. It wasn't last, best, and final. Uh, One bid $105. The winner, Roche, bid $114.50. And within 15 minutes after they submitted the bid, the board had convened. The board made a quick decision to go with the Roche bid. As we had promised them that we would, we did not call back the other party until we'd swapped signature pages, and the rest is history. Uh, That deal did get hung up for almost a year in antitrust land, both with the FTC and with the CMA in London. It got hung up for very interesting substantive reasons. Historically, the antitrust authorities had not considered phase one or phase two assets to be competitors for purposes of antitrust analysis. Beginning with that deal and a deal that Celgene was doing concurrently with BMS, the FTC and the CMA changed their mind. And they decided that henceforth, they were going to consider new modalities, phase one and phase two companies to be potential competitors. And the landscape for antitrust has forever been altered. The myocardia situation, David, was decidedly different. It was similar in some respects in the sense that it was an unsolicited bid. It was similar in some respects because the board first met to decide whether they were interested in conducting a process at all because the company had had no predisposition to sell. But again, a very aggressive bidder came in. That aggressive bidder chose to bid against himself. This is BMS repeatedly. And at some point, the board kind of shrugged their shoulders and said, well, maybe the stockholders would be better. Maybe the patient population would be better if we took a serious look at that. So what happens in these situations, of course, is that our collective job is to achieve the highest price reasonably available. 
And the way you typically do that, David, of course, is you conduct a market check. So unlike the Spark situation where we thought there might be multiple people interested in the technology, in the case of myocardia, the conclusion that the board reached after input from lawyers and bankers and directors was that there was only one potential other bidder who had both the interest in the indication as well as the deep pockets sufficient to do a 12 or $13 billion deal. So we conducted that market check quickly with that one party, and that one party passed. And so unlike the Spark situation where we had huge actual competitive tension and could drive a process in the way that we did, in the case of myocardia, we had no other bidder there. Now, of course, we could continue to run the company independently, but we had to run a process that would lead them to move their price aggressively. And so that led to a different set of tactics in terms of our willingness to remain independent and their fear, though we never lied to them and would never lie to them, their fear that we might have another bidder, even though we, uh, in fact, did not. You mentioned in the myocardia situation that you called a second bidder. Presumably, this world is small enough, and the prospective buyers for a biotechnology company with a given specialty are identifiable enough that that you feel uh, you can identify the two, three, four likely buyers, and that those likely buyers will have a pretty good sense very quickly if they're interested in buying them. Yes, speed's important. And one of the great things about the pharmaceutical industry is that the buyers are not hundreds, not two or three, but you know, you're talking about the same 10 or 20 companies, depending upon size range, again and again and again. And those companies are constantly doing research as to opportunities. So typically, when the bankers recommend a market check of A, B, and C, and we go out to A, B, and C and see if there's any interest, there's a reasonable probability that A, B, and C will know all about this target, will have considered it within their business development group as a possible target. And so you can cut to the chase pretty quickly if you go to the right players. And what, just out of curiosity, and I know this is the pharma side as opposed to the biotech side, given that deep knowledge of the market, what, what leads a pharma company to proactively make an approach to a potential target a biotech company as, as opposed to knowing that it would be interested in this entity if it comes on the market? Yeah, well, in spite of the humongous size of most of these pharmaceutical companies, believe it or not, David, they don't all do everything. You know, some specialize in certain disease states. You know, a lot of these companies are very much focused on oncology. Uh, others may focus on rare disease. Some are focused on new modalities like gene therapy in the case of Spark. Others are kind of more traditional technologies and focused in that fashion. So basically, the bankers that are expert in this area maintain a great deal of data and knowledge about what the prospective buyers are potentially interested in. They go around, even though they're typically on the sell side, and they talk to all the major buyers and they ask, gee, 
what might you be interested in? And so when the unsolicited bid comes in from X, typically the bankers know pretty quickly who should be on the shortlist. Now that said, and this is an important practice point, the bankers don't decide who's involved in the market check. That's a decision for the board of directors. Will the board of directors take counsel from uh, bankers? Absolutely. Will they take counsel from lawyers, particularly with regard to the antitrust implications of certain prospective buyers? Absolutely. But at the end of the day, as a fiduciary matter, we always make certain that it is our directors who are deciding, are we going to two? Are we going to 10? If we're going to four, which four? And sometimes we have multiple meetings to just discuss the shape of the table with regard to the competitive set. And then finally, uh, tell us a little bit about your work with Moderna in developing their vaccine, how the role you and your lawyers have played in that process. Well, I've been doing what I do, David, for 41 years. And unquestionably, the Moderna experience, particularly in the course of the pandemic, has been the most challenging and the most fulfilling of my professional career. As I indicated, we, Goodwin, started with Moderna as a baby company out of flagship labs. And we brought it from a baby company to a $60 billion plus mature adult. And I think the most compelling thing I can say is I think it's just the beginning because the mRNA technology that underlies Moderna's vaccine has essentially now been proven out, at least in one indication. Before the pandemic began, Moderna had never sold a drug, had never had a drug approved by the FDA had never even reached phase three clinical trials. It was a small-ish discovery company, science company, located near MIT in Kendall Square. And in the course of nine months, we were honored to collaborate with management and help on the legal side to the point where more than 100 good ones Proctor lawyers have been deployed as we helped them mature, effectively building the 747 as it was rolling down the runway. The company had a very small legal team, very small, three people, and now it is a full-fledged commercial enterprise selling billions of dollars of vaccines all over the country. It did not have public affairs function built out. It did not have a commercial function built out. It did not have a legal function built out. And through the extraordinary leadership of Stefan Bonsell, its CEO, and its board chaired by Nubara Fayan, today it is a full-fledged pharmaceutical company. And for me personally, to be in the boardroom for the last 10 years, to watch it develop, and particularly to be in the boardroom through the pandemic where the board basically by way of committee or full board, was meeting multiple times a week. Again, it's been the greatest challenge and the most uh, fulfilling uh, chapter in my career. But then again, I got a long way to go. Stuart, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for hearing me out. For Drinks with a Deal, I'm David Marcus. Mm -hmm.